come with great news and a great update to start the pod on. We love great news. Don't we? Those 41 workers that were stuck in that tunnel in India, we talked about it a few days ago, for more than two weeks, they're freed. They, they managed to hand tool their way to them and now they're all out, pulled out through a big steel pipe. That is great news and a great update. 17 days, I believe it was, all up. No, thank you. Pleased to hear they're all out. I too actually have an update uh, of the Christmas tree kind. Okay, slightly different. <laughs> Just hard pivot, as always. We asked you on Insta if you had a real or a fake Chrissy tree. The vast majority, three quarters, say you go fake. What do you have, Jess? Are you... And have you put it up yet, actually? Oh, I don't well, know. I'm, I'm a fake girl too, yes. yes I think it's yeah. slightly more, well, actually my partner has hay fever, which is part of the reason we can't have it. It'll be a very sneezy season. Anyway, that's enough about us. Kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Jess. And I'm Imogen, and this is what's worth talking about. The government's announced its 100-day plan, so we're sieving through what's in there. Trump's got a new presidential nominee challenger. Who are they, and have they got a shot? The UN's annual climate conference kicks off tonight. We're chatting what to expect with Stuff's climate reporter. And we can't ignore it any longer. We're talking oh, all the scandal caused by the latest book on the royal family. Oh, and we've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. So. Another tick for the new government agreement over its first 100-day plan. The National Party released a version during campaigning that included many of the now familiar pledges, repealing the ute tax, cutting back on public spending, cracking down on gangs and a ban on cell phones in schools. The final version was revealed by Prime Minister Christopher Luxon in a post-Cabinet briefing. Next week the House sits and this coalition government begins to put in place 49 actions within the first 100 days. These form part of a comprehensive and ambitious policy programme that over time will mean New Zealand sees better results for government spending and it will help New Zealanders get ahead. To help us chew over what this all means, we're joined by Richard Shaw, a professor in political science at Massey University. Kia ora, Richard. Thanks for coming on. Kia ora, Jess. Hi, Imogen. Thanks for having me. So, what do we know about the big things that the government wants to achieve in this first 100 days? We know that they want to roll back some of the restrictions on nicotine levels. Uh, They want to roll back some of the restrictions on the availability of tobacco and on encouraging a future generation not to smoke. And they need the revenue that will be generated by the rolling back of those restrictions to pay for Uh, Amongst other things, tax breaks, but also the reintroduction a little quicker than had been expected during the election campaign on interest deductibility for landlords. Um, We know that there are a suite of initiatives around dealing with gangs, which will be implemented. There was some quite significant stuff in the education sector as well. And one of those things which had been flagged in advance is the disestablishment of Te Pukinga, which is the amalgamation of the countries formerly separate Polytechnics, um, that process is well in hand, although some way from being finished. That's quite so unrolling that stuff is is a big job of work. We know that there is quite a lot of language that includes phrases like beginning work on or starting work on or introducing or taking advice on. So it isn't clear how much of this will in fact be completed or done. Some of it is quite complex. There's also a limited number of parliamentary working days, uh, depending on how you calculate the 100 days. So I think the signal that the government is trying to send is not so much this stuff will be done, 
The public service uh, body of workers by headcount will be reduced by 6.5%. The Fair Pay Act will be removed. The education guidelines, which are described in the National New Zealand First Coalition Agreement as educational ideology, but which were in fact guidelines that were introduced by New Zealand First Party Minister Tracy Martin in a previous government. A lot of this stuff won't be completed, mm. but there is a signal about activity and energy and focus and getting on and doing stuff. It's a lot of repealing and mm. removing, isn't it? You mentioned the fair pay agreement. I mean, those were only just introduced last year. We don't even know if the policy as it was was even going to work, but I suppose is that just politics? Yes, I think that's just politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, what we do know, to your point, Imogen, is that a lot of politics is not really about policy, and it isn't really about policy evaluation as well. I mean, we've had statements from from the ACT Party in particular that the Fair Pay Act was harmful to productivity and to business, but we're really not sure about that. We do know that they have similar provisions in Australia. doesn't seem to harm productivity, salary and employment rates, productivity outputs over there, but there is an ideological position, sure. and that is politics. What is going on here is not informed by evidence or evaluation, but it is consistent with the principles upon which the respective parties campaigned. Mm-hmm. Christopher Luxon, he said in his stand-up that he's he wants to hit issues with more intensity. Is that him being dynamic, or is what does that even mean in practice? Do you think that is all about sending a signal that we are a new bunch of people and we have energy and dynamism and we are going to get stuff done and we are not like the people who we have replaced. So yes, it is partly about the new prime minister Christopher Luxon demonstrating intent, purpose, and focus. I think that at the moment it is also about the prime minister trying to reclaim a little bit of initiative, given that there are questions already being asked about the relationship between the Prime Minister and the first of his two Deputy Prime Mm, Ministers. mm. There is an issue around government management and control of the agenda and the narrative which Mr Luxon is already running into. Mm. Uh, So I think this is partly around regaining the initiative in that respect as well. Richard Shaw, Professor in Political Science at Massey University, thank you so much for your insight today and just echoing that message about the tough economic times ahead. The Reserve Bank has said the official cash rate will likely have to stay at current levels for some time. They made the decision to hold the OCR at 5.5% yesterday. Hey, if you're not already... You need to chuck us a follow on TikTok and Instagram because we're playing it again. Is it cake? It's back this week. Imo's reading out two headlines. One is real, one is fake. See if you can figure out which one it is. Then I'll do my best based on, you know, some of your opinions as well on the pod tomorrow. So please do get involved. Find us by searching Newsable NZ. The race to be the Republican nominee for president is on. Not that that necessarily is saying much. It's been nothing but Trump, Trump, Trump since work to find a contender to Joe Biden began. But now a realistic challenger could be emerging from the pack. Less than two months until the primaries begin in Iowa. Nikki Haley, former US ambassador to the United Nations, has gained some big endorsements in recent weeks. Jess has been digging into all of this to find out who she is and whether she really stands a chance against Trump and his diehard fans. What do you got? Indeed I do. So Nikki Haley, her name and face, it actually might be familiar to a lot of people already. She started gaining attention during her time in the UN because she had to defend some of Trump's, you know, really controversial foreign policy decisions on on the global stage. Things like withdrawing from the Iran deal, withdrawing from the UN Human Rights Council, withdrawing from the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Say withdrawing one more time, go on. I know, so much withdrawing. And, And most of the withdrawing was actually undone then by Joe Biden when he took office anyway. But I think what kind 
of fascinated people at that time was you've got this quite charismatic, well-spoken woman who seemingly is quite intelligent, having to defend what a lot of people thought was the indefensible. So fast forward from then to the start of this year, and she threw a hat in the ring to challenge for the Republican nomination. So how's she rating compared to Donald Trump? She is like well, well behind still. Trump is sitting close to you know sixty percent approval. Nikki Haley's sitting at more like ten percent, but she's had some really strong performances in the latest debates, which Trump hasn't been taking part in, and she's definitely got the momentum. And she's just had a huge endorsement from the influential right-wing billionaire Charles Koch, one and a half of the Koch brothers that people might have heard about before. So the Koch network is anti-Trump, and it's willing to spend big, big bucks to create someone who can beat him. So for Haley, that endorsement is like essentially winning the lottery. First things first, there'll be a multi-million dollar ad campaign in support of her, which will kick off in the States this week. So compared to Trump, what does she actually believe in? Um, she's definitely marketing herself as, as the reasonable Republican, but she's still pretty right wing, especially when you can kind of compare it to New Zealand standards on things like trans issues. She said trans women competing in girls' sport is the woman's issue of our time. On abortion, she said that she's pro-life. She doesn't judge people that are pro-choice. Uh, and then when it comes to foreign policy, she thinks the US should keep giving aid to Ukraine, which a lot of Republicans don't, and she's very, very anti-China. Well, let's see if she can make some headway on those polls. 60% to 10. I mean, there's a lot of work ahead of her, but like you say, big bucks behind her now. Kia ora, I'm Adam Blair. I played the great game of rugby league for the Storm, Tigers, Broncos and the Mighty Warriors. And I'm Goran Paladin, sports presenter and rugby league fanatic. I won a World Cup too. I played 51 tests for New Zealand. Yeah, he's a national treasure, people. Come on. Blairy and I, we're joining forces for a brand new rugby league podcast called League of Our Own. Each week we talk Kiwis across the NRL and of course everything was. All the big names, the big stories. And some of my own stories too. Well, if we can make them fit. We'll make time. Okay. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Debut ep dropping on Wednesday afternoon and every Wednesday after that. You can listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcasts. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. Mate, your, your stories are way too long, eh? Nah, we've got to take them on a journey. <laughs> oh, the journey. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we are still deep diving with, I would say, the expert of all experts into all things royal scandal after this week's bombshell royal family allegation-filled book, the best and easiest way to never miss juicy, juicy stuff like this is to follow us on your favourite podcast platform. Simple as. So juicy. COP28 gets underway today. The annual United Nations conference where governments discuss how to limit and how to prepare for future climate change. But the event, it's already getting criticism before it's even begun because of its choice of location. The United Arab Emirates, one of the biggest oil producers in the whole world. The UAE had also appointed the chief executive of the state-owned oil company, Sultan Al-Jabir, to be the president of these talks. So to help us understand whether this is going to get in the way of any potential progress is Stuff's climate reporter, Olivia Wannan. Kia ora, Olivia. Welcome to Newsable. Kia ora. Remind us... What are these COP meetings all about again? <laughs> um, so basically you summarised it well. Um, the world has promised to uh, to fight climate change and so they meet once a year basically to discuss how that's going. 
the UAE seems like a totally bizarre choice of host. Uh, how how on earth did it end up there? Um, so basically, if you think about these COP conferences as kind of like a dinner party where you're catering for a bunch of people, they kind of rotate the host because it's a lot of responsibility. Now, it is a big deal. You get to have a bit of say over what's on the menu. Um, but yeah, it does take a lot of work. There are five regional groups in the world, Africa, Asia Pacific, Eastern European, uh, Latin America and Western Europe. And each of those groups choose a host and then it rotates from there. We need to take these oil-producing nations along with us in this climate change journey, right, and giving them this opportunity might do that. Some people say that, you know, clearly climate change is global. Um, If only some countries, you know, cut greenhouse gases, that's not going to, Mm. you know, solve the entire problem. Um, At the other point, some people um, accuse countries of signing up to the Paris Agreement solely to basically get in the way of proceedings. So... You know, there's a huge range of views on it. Um, Obviously, the amazing reporting out of the BBC that found that the UAE was actually planning to use this gathering of nations to uh, make oil deals with other countries. Not good. Um, You know, did tend to um, give some fuel to the fire that oil producing nations don't really have their hearts in it. How much progress is really made and what have we seen over these 27, now 28 years? Yeah, so um, the talks actually started about five years before COP1 even took place. So this has been <laughs> decades of stuff. It, it all kind of started off in the 1990s. Um, you guys may have heard of the Kyoto Protocol. Uh, that was supposed to be the first deal that was going to save the planet. Mm. Um, that actually uh, happened at COP3. But what happened is only a few developed nations signed up. Developing nations argued that they really didn't have the resources to do any of this stuff. So basically it was developed nations who promised to cut their emissions. And the USA didn't sign up, obviously massive um, emitting nation. Um, And it meant that big countries like India and China didn't as well. And then about kind of, you know, late 2000s, we realised that actually emissions were keeping on rising. There was some progress in places like the UK and Europe, but really the world was still heading to climate disaster, as the scientists warned us. Kind of, they started from scratch again uh, in Paris, um, and that's where we got the Paris Agreement. That was COP twenty one. In the in the Paris Agreement era, we're supposed to be cutting emissions. Now, um, everything's kind of kicking in, but at the same time, while emissions are slowing, they're still rising. Stuff's climate reporter Olivia Wannan, thank you so much for your time. I don't know what's wrong with us. We are honestly, we're looking for trouble talking about this. We really are. But we we, we simply must address the new book on the royal family. This is one of those topics that just starts all out wars. No one doesn't have an opinion I on I still don't days. understand the absolute battle lines that people draw over this as well. I met an Aussie couple recently and somehow, I, I, somehow the royals came up and the woman was like, do not get me started on Meghan Markle. It was very serious. People live and breathe this stuff. So the reason we're actually going to talk about it is because there's a new book out called Endgame, written by Omid Scobie, who used to be a royal reporter. He kind of turned into Harry and Meghan's biographer, unofficial 
biographer, of course, and as you can imagine, it is causing some mega big tsunami-sized waves. So here to chat to us about all the details is royal expert Kinsey Schofield, who has her own podcast covering all things royal. It's called To Die For, a play on Princess Diana's name there. Kia ora, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So the First question I want to ask is, who is this Omid Scobie character? Where's he come from? Well, you know, I actually have friends in common with Omid that worked with him when he was an entertainment reporter, and they absolutely loved him. And I had a girlfriend who messaged me, I think it was yesterday, when we were talking about all of the chaos surrounding Endgame, and she was like, he used to be so fun. I loved him. Megan ruined him. (laughs) He got on the royal circuit, really started to blossom there and found kind of a friend. I don't, I, I'm using that term loosely, but found a friend in Megan. Megan realized that he was someone that was sympathetic towards her, kind towards her, and gave her really positive press. So we've seen him work with the Sussexes in multiple different capacities. So Endgame has started to hit shelves around the world and there's been... A bit of a boo-boo, shall we say. There's been a big muck-up in the books that were translated into Dutch. Now, these copies apparently named and shamed the person or people involved in those alleged comments around how dark Harry and Meghan's baby Archie would be. But those details aren't in any other versions of the book. What's your understanding of what's gone on here? We don't need to name names because mm. it is all very much a moving beast and confusing. Right. Well, Omid claims that he never put the name within the English version that was initially written for publication. So there's a huge question mark there. If if that name w- was never actually written within the pages of Endgame. Some are speculating that it was just an error in translation. In Within that paragraph, some names got jumbled around. Now, Omen claims that the reason that he did not name the alleged royal racist is because of litigation. He was fearful of litigation. It's it's strange to me that Omid says he can't name the person, you know, because he's afraid of legal action when there have been multiple people so far that have named multiple people. Yeah, it is fascinating. And in terms of the rest of the book, when we've had Harry and Meghan over Netflix, he's got his own book out. What can we possibly learn again from from a new book? I'd say, honestly, the biggest takeaway from me, William is painted as a bad guy, but I felt like I was surprised. To me, I was like, oh, William has big balls. Like, uh, William is a tougher character. He's a harder character than I have ever read him described as. And again, this is an interpretation based on likely Harry and Meghan's influence. But I don't read Prince William not returning your calls, not letting you on the jet. I don't read that as William being a bully. I read that as somebody that's setting some pretty healthy boundaries mm. after you violated them mm. with a reality show and a podcast and a, you know, in a, in a book. It's almost like he's regurgitating and we've all heard it before and we've all read it before. And at this point in time, we're sick of Harry and Meghan complaining and they look so directly associated with it. Mm. It's fascinating to chat about it. Kinsey Schofield, thank you so much for your time. And you can catch any more of Kinsey that you want on her podcast to die for once you finish this episode. Who do you stand with, Jess? Oh, my God. Don't ask me this. Well, I'm asking you. I think I was probably... I was probably team Harry to start with, but now I just feel kind of like Kingsley felt like he's just a bit 
the pair of them are probably a bit complaining now. And I love reading about it, yeah. but I also don't understand the division. So I like to sit this one on the on the sideline and yeah, and watch them all. But I'm willing to bet someone listening has very strong thoughts. Many people listening, potentially. I'm going to stoke the fire. I'm going to prod the bear. It's going to be a day of Instagram polls because I'm declaring it. We're going to chuck <laughs> a poll up on the gram. Are you Team Harry and Megan or the rest of them? We'll figure out the wording. Or the other we'll lot. We'll put it on Insta and you let us know what you think. We've done it all this week. We've talked about four-year terms. We've talked about plastic Christmas trees. I mean, why why would you not want to be a part of our, our Instagram channel? Make sure you check it out. Newsable NZ for our latest uh, opinionated poll. I think that's enough to end it all, eh? That's Newsable for today. I'm Imogen Wells. I'm Jessica McCarthy. Thanks so much for listening. Newsable. News that's worth talking about. If you liked it and reckon it's also worth supporting, please make a contribution at stuff.co.nz support.